Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. Today, we're chatting with Rory Sutherland, who is the vice chairman of Ogilvy Group UK. He also writes the Spectator's Wikiman column, and he's the best-selling author of his book, Alchemy. Rory is known for his unique perspectives and enjoys looking into the science of human behaviors. We touch on lots of subjects in this episode, so sit back and enjoy the meeting of two minds. Welcome, Rory. What a pleasure. We're, we're not actually not far from you. We're down in Whitstable. We're Whitstablians. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm trying to persuade WPP to open an office somewhere like Whitstable on the grounds that we need to diversify our property portfolio to make it less London-centric, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And my argument is that creative people will move to the seaside much more readily than they'll move to the countryside. I would. Yeah. I agree. It's Islington by sea. It is, yeah. And uh, Deal's the same. I've got a little flat in Deal. I, I live in West Kent. But my holiday home is in East Kent. And I jokingly say to my wife, life, it's all about contrasts. <laughs> <laughs> but actually deals like that, um, you know, Margate and Broadstairs are rapidly um, being completely uh, transformed. And of course, High Speed One has been really good there. Mm. Because actually, I think High Speed One's a great idea. I'm a massive High Speed Two sceptic, but I think High Speed yeah, One's fantastic. I'm- going to ask you about that actually there are a billion things i was going to ask you about <laughs> no, far away. i have this same issue with high speed 2 being something that i'm sort of generally against all my opinions on everything feel like some sort of bayesian filter it's not like i'm definitely one way or the other on anything in life politics or anything else but with hs2 i guess i'm leaning more towards i'm skeptical of it and yet i live in an area that has seen such benefit from HS1 that I can't kind of get that out of my head. Uh, the distinction there, I think, is that High Speed 1, if you, particularly if you commute or if you travel into London twice or three times a week, okay, it's saving people an hour a day, 100 times a year, right? Mm-hmm. Now, most people don't travel between Manchester and London frequently enough for a 40-minute saving to make a difference to their life. It doesn't even make much difference to their day, to be honest, because all that will happen is you're expected to get up earlier, so you can now attend a meeting in Manchester at 9.30 when it used to be 10.30. And so there's a big difference between if you save a million people an hour a year, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't change how people behave. It's irrelevant, okay? Mm -hmm. If you save a hundred... Now, remember, the population of Kent's about 1.7 million. It's quite big. So if you save, I don't know, 50,000 people an hour a day, it's life-changing. And so the problem with High Speed 2 is that, you know, that you might argue, and I, I, I'm willing to listen to this argument, that actually the Zoom revolution has made High Speed 2 more relevant, not less, mm. because it'll be possible to live and mostly work in Manchester, but to travel to London twice a week. So your office might officially be in London, but actually, you know, twice a week, three times a week, you work somewhere else. And then you zap into London when you need to. So that might make the case for high speed too, oddly, stronger. What I always say is, look, there isn't really a market for people making that journey five days a week. Because, you know, you don't need a, what I said, you don't need a train. You need an estate agent if you're, if you're traveling from Manchester to London five days a week. Yeah. Um, that's kind of insanity. Birmingham, Birmingham Airport, bit more, bit more debatable. One of the interesting things there is that... Um, it's actually commuting where time saving really matters because you experience the gains repeatedly in one off journeys time saving you know at, at the extreme nobody asks how fast a cruise ship is you know because you're unlikely to be commuting between two major cities well i think i think this has a bearing on procurement okay because procurement always sets these metrics once you've set a series of metrics you fail to notice the assumptions 
that led to those metrics. They start becoming a new truth, okay, a new reality for you. And so an example would be, and this is an interesting train one, which I, I, I've repeatedly said, I wrote about it in The Spectator. And I said, look, if you want to cut journey time and increase capacity on the trains between London, Birmingham and Manchester, I can do that for you for half a million quid and I can do it in about six months. Uh, they said, no, you can't. That's obviously impossible. Don't be ridiculous. And I said, no, no, no. What you need to reduce is not the time spent on the train, which is actually quality time to some extent. You need to reduce the time spent waiting around at the station. I said, look, very simply, okay, when I go to Manchester, I book a first-class advance ticket, because if you book a full fare ticket, it costs a billion pounds, even in second class. So I go, okay, I'll book a first-class advance, which is usually a pretty reasonable price. Then I can't afford to miss that train. So I turn up at Euston Station 45 minutes early from Kent, because and then spend 45 minutes hanging around in Burger King or in the lounge, <laughs> waiting to depart on the designated train. Now, during that period, two trains leave, half empty, 20 and 40 minutes before my own train. And if you just had an app where I could say, I'm here at Euston already, and the app replied, if you pay £10, you can go on the train that's leaving in five minutes and sit in seat J8. If you pay £3, you can leave... 20 minutes before, and you can occupy the currently unbooked seat J10, okay? Now, what you've done there is you've increased capacity because you've made better use of empty seats. You've freed up seats on later trains, which is always good in yield management terms. EasyJet used to do this. If you turned up really, really early at the airport and they had empty seats, they just say, if you want to go on the earlier flight, that's fine because it gives us a chance to sell extra seats to latecomers on the last flight of the day. Mm -hmm. So you'd increase capacity and you reduce my journey time by 20 or 40 minutes and it would cost half a million pounds. Now, if this seems crazy, all I'm doing is redefining journey time as end to end rather than time spent on train. And the current transport economics model determines that time spent traveling is wasted, whereas it doesn't place any wastage value on the time I spend hanging around at the bloody station. Mm -hmm. Now, what's stupid about that is the time on the train is economically valuable. The time at the station is worthless and annoying. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is fundamentally trying to optimize the part of the journey where time matters less, actually, which is when I'm sitting on a train with Wi-Fi and a plug. Okay, I'm pretty happy that I'm getting on with my shit. You know, to be honest, uh, a lot of people complained to Eurostar when they made the journey faster because they said, I liked a three-hour train journey. Mm. You know, it was time to unwind and chill and catch up with people. My aunt, who lives in Whitstable, says that she, she used to live in London and commute. Mm. She works for ITV. And her journey was too short. When she moved out here, she said, it's great. Yes. I, can, I can read a book. I can watch a film. I can do all the things. I, I had exactly that when I lived in Bayswater because I walked to Lancaster Gate Tube Station to go to Tottenham Court Road. And most of the time was spent walking to the tube and dicking around. Then you had not enough time on the bloody tube to actually read a book or a newspaper, and you had to get off at Tottenham Court Road. It was a total pain. Mm. And so what happens is people start measuring the wrong thing. Then they start optimising the wrong thing. And it comes back to a Peter Drucker comment, which is there's nothing worse in a business. Seeing it struggling to make more efficient something which it shouldn't be doing at all. Yes. And so my point about this, you and now incidentally, a little bit of bearing about this is most of the overcrowding on the trains from London to Birmingham and Manchester 
is not caused by demand. It's caused by unevenness of demand through the price mechanism, which is the trains that are most crowded are always the first two off-peak trains of the day. So actually, you could already increase capacity by simply changing the pricing and stopping at yeah. having that weird cliff edge between what the step. The step. Yeah. yeah. So if mm. you if you just made the pricing smoother, you could solve the problem actually overnight, more or less. Yeah. That's exactly an example of this problem. Gradiated yeah. pricing. And I think a lot of people, to be honest, because of the stupid step, are actually, they got a conference in Manchester and they go, I'm not paying 150 quid extra to turn up at 9, 9.30. Stuff that for Game of Soldiers. I'm now going to pay, you know, vastly less and turn up at the conference at 10.30, mm-hmm. which means a load of people are missing an hour of a conference when the train that would have got them there on time is probably largely empty. Mm-hmm. And so economists are and, and engineers are unbelievably narrow in the number of variables they consider. And of course, they tend to assume what you might call a smooth world, and they don't mm-hmm. look at weird kind of... Well, first of all, they don't look at the difference between saving 100 people at 200 hours a year and saving 200 people, you know, a small number of hours a year, which is a big difference. I did a calculation once. The most frequent Concord traveller, who was this total nutter, who basically was the world's most frequently travelled man, who was some sort of had some frequent flyer job, and he was the heaviest Concord user. He was on the first flight. He was on the last flight. And Concord saved him something like fifteen minutes a day in the course of his working life. Okay. Now that's equivalent to moving seven minutes closer to your office. Right? <laughs> Yeah. So the simple the simple fact is that you can achieve huge gains in speed, but they're irrelevant in the scheme of things unless you know unless you have someone who is literally travelling on Concorde three times a week. It's simply not that important. They, are, they also felt that the, the other problem with Concorde is the return leg, because the sensible way to do the return leg is slow and overnight. Mm-hmm. So Concorde works quite well when you're flying west. When you're flying east, the two Concords used to leave New York, if I'm right, something like 10 in the morning, and then get in at 6 in the afternoon, and the other one left at midday. Why would you leave New York at midday? Yeah. Okay, You haven't got enough time for a morning meeting, right? You might want to leave New York first thing in the morning, but then you lose a whole day of work while you're on the plane, effectively. Mm. The whole thing is essentially based on a kind of Newtonian model of, of utility. Which does just just doesn't work. Actually, this is something I was going to ask you about. There's a couple of points here. One, that idea of measuring the train journey is something that resonates to me in terms of quantalism. The, the idea that everything that matters can be measured and everything that you measured matters. Quantification bias, sometimes sometimes called the McNamara effect from the Secretary of De- Defense in the Vietnam War, who started quantifying the war by kill count. Right. And he admitted afterwards it was a catastrophe because... It might work as an appalling measure in World War One when you have trench warfare. When you have guerrilla warfare, of course, if you kill people, you tend to create more volunteers. And if you kill people unjustly, unjustly, you create a lot more volunteers. Mm-hmm. So simply measuring the kill count was an absolutely appalling. I mean, never mind the ethics of it. Uh, it was an appalling metric to lay down, which was a hearts and minds conflict to some extent. Yeah. So that one of the things that was interesting to talk to you about is this this sort of idea of the the sort of technocracy. Yeah. Um, making all of your selections based on things that you can measure easily, things that you can justify. And the the flip to that, which you, I think you linked to a video um, of a guy called George Cooper 
who who did this podcast recently. Yes, I'm a big fan. Yeah. And he was talking about how, you know, science generally and had a tendency to think of the world in terms of sort of physics yeah. and numbers and formulas and ideas that you could prove and point at and have a have a formal proof of. And they tended to neglect the idea of kind of Darwinian approaches. The Darwinian approaches, they're also marketing and psychological approaches, by the way. Because a lot of business problems, Uber, the Uber map is the example I always cite, which solves the problem of waiting for a taxi, not chronologically, but psychologically. It doesn't reduce your wait time for the car. It reduces your feeling of uncertainty while you're waiting. And mm. that has actually, per dollar invested, it has an inordinately greater effect on people's readiness to book taxis than simply making taxis turn up faster. Yeah. Because actually, I'm not that bothered waiting for a cab. First of all, what it's based on is a false correlation, okay? So quite often, human emotional things spuriously correlate with physical measures. So if you looked at customer satisfaction, you would see that people whose planes departed on time were happier than people whose planes were late. And you'd see that people who had to wait a long time for a taxi tended to be more angry than people who'd had a taxi turn up in two minutes. Mm. And so the assumption is we create happiness by making taxis turn up faster. But the the real measure there, now don't get me wrong, if a taxi takes two hours to turn up, you're going to be pissed off because you missed your meeting. Okay, I'm not, I'm not talking about this in extreme cases. You know, most people's taxi journey, they build in a bit of a margin of error, okay, anyway, right? It's not that if a taxi turns up, you're going to be 20 minutes, you're going to be late. And if a taxi turns up in 10 minutes, you're going to be on time. It's generally not that level of precision because traffic's uncertain to in addition. And my argument is the spurious correlation there is that what people really hate is the uncertainty, not the duration. And you're trying to minimize the duration. So, and then, then of course, you also have problems. So there's quantification bias. There's the fact that there are no metrics for human emotional states, okay, except at a very crude level. There isn't an SI unit for uncertainty. There isn't an SI unit for anxiety. There isn't an SI unit for fairness, you know, for perceived fairness of something. Okay, but there's an SI unit for time and cost and all the things that economists try and cope with. And economists have created this imaginary measure called utility, which is the attempt essentially to turn economics into physics so that it can reach the required level of mathiness. Then, of course, we've got to get down to the fact that once you have a metric which is a proxy metric, not a real metric, it becomes gameable. And you see this in the famous NHS case, which is one of which is that your doctor won't give you an appointment three days in advance because they're measured on how many patients they see on the day an appointment is requested. Now, the doctor surgeries have solved that problem very neatly by simply saying, ring back at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. We only give appointments for the day itself. Now, by doing that, they score 100% on number of patients they see on the day they requested an appointment at the expense of anybody with a job who wants to see a doctor. Because if you have a job, first of all, you'd much rather have a 9 a.m. appointment three days hence than have a, a, a 12 noon appointment today, because the 12 noon appointment basically means you're going to miss a whole day of work. Secondly, if you've got a job, you may need to clear it with other people before you can take a morning off to go to see the doctor anyway. So you actually want a delay between requesting an appointment and an appointment being offered. Mm -hmm. And so what you're doing is you're incentivizing doctor surgeries essentially to game the system. And the most extreme case, of course, is waiting times at A&E where they kept people in ambulances because if you're sitting in an ambulance, you haven't technically been admitted. And so by leaving someone sitting in an ambulance while they're waiting to see an A&E doctor or a triage nurse or whatever, you made your figures look great. 
despite the fact that the patient experience was a nightmare and you were wasting an ambulance. Oh. And so this is the great thing, which is that quite often, by the way, independent common sense judgment might be a better guide to behavior than trying to construct a model because there are so many things the model simply can't capture. And then you get there's another problem, which is worth knowing, is Goodhart's law, which is that any metric that becomes a target loses its value as a metric, because the very fact that people are pursuing it means that its measurement value falls, because it's no longer telling you anything except what people are trying to gain. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Yeah, so those are all really important. And procurement also misunderstands human decision-making. You must know, if you're familiar with procurement, you must know this balanced scorecard approach if you're choosing between different competing suppliers. Yes, there was a great podcast that you did with the art of procurement about all of the issues in procurement. And at the end of that podcast, you said, basically, here are all the problems. We need to work together to yes. find solutions to this, you know, and you invited people, you know, on Twitter and other, other channels to try and work on this problem. I see it as a massive issue for the country as a whole, but not, not just now, since forever. I used to work for the Defence Science and Technology Laboratories up at Fort House. Did. Oh, I know. Well, yes. they occasionally let off explosions, which makes the house shake. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And the people of Seven Oaks, where I think you you sometimes reside, um, get the the big air raid siren going, don't you? Yeah. Um, fairly regularly. Um, but so I worked in defence procurement um, and working to, to look at technologies and to make recommendations to the Defence Procurement Agency about what technology to buy. Same issues there. I've come to the NHS. I used to work uh, for a defence contractor as well. Same problems there, you know, seeing it from the supplier side. I remember reading Samuel Pepys's diary and seeing in there him talking about naval warfare ships that they were getting against the Dutch and the problems they were having and the bribes and the quality of the product they were getting and how badly spec they were. You know, there was all these issues. This 300 years ago, I've seen it in every industry. I don't think it's peculiar to the UK. It seems to be an issue of how to spend other people's money. But it is a problem of scale, by the way. And, it's, and generally, everybody, and the NHS shows the patterns of this, Everybody who's got an economic mindset and a managerial or technocratic mindset is obsessed with gains to scale, and they never quantify, because they're harder to measure, disadvantages to scale. And one of the problems is this quantification bias gets more extreme the higher up you get to in an organization, to a point where you reach board level, and board level decisions are just a business of people presenting numbers to each other, with no idea really of the wider meanings of those numbers. And so the only information that makes it up to the top is information that can aggregate. And numbers aggregate, but anecdotes don't, for example. You know, stories, things, you know, lots of things don't aggregate. Numbers do. And they always aggregate through addition, by the way, as well, which is interesting because not all numbers should be treated as if they're additive. But that tends to be what happens because people know how to add at a very simple level. (laughs) And so this quantification bias reaches a point where, and this is why it was the McNamara effect, he was the guy fighting the war at the top. People on the front probably would have told him that what they were doing was stupid. But the Mm. only information that would aggregate right up to the level of the Department of Defense was something that was in numerical form. And then what happens is a metric becomes a target. The target is often misconceived. And so the interesting phrase is that 
what's often attributed to Peter Drucker, which is what gets measured, gets managed, is usually quoted approvingly. And the two things are that Drucker never said it. He never would have said anything that stupid. And secondly, it wasn't an approving quote. The full quote is, even if it is pointless to measure and manage it, and even if it actively harms the organisation to do so. That's the full quote from what gets measured, gets managed. It started as a criticism and then started being used as a as an encouragement mm. yep. in the same way that um uh, will you believe it the wild rover was conceived as a temperance song okay <laughs> so that song the wild rover which i don't think is ever so, so, sung by anybody who isn't already pissed <laughs> uh, was actually written as a temperance song so it's one of those things where this thing you know rather like loads of money who was attended as a biting satire on thatcherite materialism and loads of money became a kind of hero uh, i don't know if you remember him yeah. a harry enfield yeah. character yeah, yeah i do it yeah. became a taunt so that chelsea fans visiting liverpool would actually get out bundles of money and wave them at the people opposite and- <laughs> In the podcast you did on the art of procurement, one of the things you brought up was uh, variance yes. and uh, how that applies to to procurement. You said there were there were two two factors in procurement. One is the sort of expected median outcome, uh, the sort of mathematical side of things, and then then people go for variance reduction. One of one of the uh, controls on variance. So, so, <laughs> I'm trying to repeat your own podcast here. You can you can check if I've got my working correct. No, 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 no. this is absolutely spot on. One, yeah. one of the strategies to variance reduction is um, is branding and marketing is your reputation. You know how how did you treat this customer in the past? My argument when it was that innovation in the NHS actually struggles because they they deliberately. Um, select to get against reputation and brand. In fact, we've actually gone through procurement procedures where you are not allowed to state the name of your company in your response to re- procurement. I mean, that's absolute insanity in my view. They've they've, they've created a Darwinian machine to select against innovative. Now, that probably comes from the weird medical thing that they hate the placebo effect and they hate branded medicines even though branding and medicine actually increases very important things like painkillers, if you think about it, it actually improves the placebo effect. Mm. So branded painkillers are more effective than unbranded painkillers. But instead of trying to maximise the placebo effect, um, scientific purists just try and pretend it shouldn't exist and they wish it out of the out of existence. Mm. So that, that strikes me as alarming because brand reputation is a rational variance reduction approach in that no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Now, you could argue that some organizations over-rely on it. So they're more inclined to look at a brand because the consequences for their own decision-making are all about removing downside risk. And so there are biases operating in opposite directions here. Some people are disproportionately likely to go with an overly safe solution because in terms of their own career and reputation, minimizing downside is much... You can always bullshit the upside, but... Downside, mm. as I said, credit doesn't always f- find a home very reliably, but blame always <laughs> finds a home. And there's also, by the way, the I mean, the interesting question about variance is that under multiplicative dynamics, okay, reducing variance is what you want to do, right? So I'll, I'll do a very, very simple maths lesson, okay? You've got a one and a three, okay, and you're adding them together, and it comes to four, right? Whether you add one to the four or the naught, or whether you add one to the three and the one, doesn't make any difference because you're going to end up with five right? That's addition. Under multiplicative dynamics, right? Where do you want to add the one? In three times one or four times naught, 
You don't want to add the one to the three, because that's four times one, it's only four. If you add the one to the one, it's three times two, which is six, okay? So the gain comes in adding to the smallest number in the multiplicative sequence, right? That's where the biggest gain comes, okay? Very simple bit of maths, okay? Everybody can grasp that. Now, in decisions which are interconnected, you might argue that it isn't an additive process, it's more multiplicative, because how, you know, if you look at the sales funnel, you know, uh, in a sense, the bit of the sales funnel you want to improve is the worst bit. Where, you know, where you're doing worst is where you want to improve things. In the, you know, just in the same way that you want to add the one to the lowest number of the two in any multiplicative thingy. The interesting thing there is let's look at that procurement thing where you have the balanced scorecard. OK, now, if you ask anybody who's been asked to choose an agency by evaluating the agency on a balanced scorecard where you have points for strategic vision, creative ability, chemistry, price, OK, and you, you score them all on this thing and you add it all up, right? Well, A, it's a bit flawed because when you then add up all the scores, if the procurement person just wants to award naught to everybody who has the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth highest price, and basically add full marks across the board to the person with the lowest price, the procurement person can undoubtedly skew the decision Mm -hmm. uh, and have disproportionate influence in the decision by simply using very, very extreme numbers, okay? So it's not a very good idea in, in, in that sense. But the second reason it's problematic is if you ask anybody, did you use the scorecard to arrive at your decision? You give them a couple of drinks first. They'll say, of course, that bollocks didn't. I decided which agency I wanted to win. (laughs) And then I backfilled the numbers to get the result I wanted. Now, why do they do this? And part of it is because it's multiplicative. It's not additive. Because an agent, regardless of the fact that actually strategic vision, creative ability, da-da-da, doesn't capture the whole gamut of things you care about when appointing an agency. And indeed, brand reputation probably matters quite a bit, okay? Not Not unreasonably. Despite all that, okay, it's multiplicative because an agency that's strategically brilliant and terrible creatively or vice versa is arguably useless. And so the whole business of addition is not only unnatural, but perhaps because it's unnatural, it's it, well, perhaps because it's, it's unnatural because it's wrong, because you want an agency which can meld those various things together. An agency that scores naught on personal chemistry, well, you're not going to do great work working with people you can't stand who you find morally and physically repugnant, okay? Right? So all of those things, you can't really refer to those things as being additive quantity. And therefore, that's why people ignore that model when they come to make a decision, because it's using the wrong kind of maths to begin with. And yet, because addition is mathematical, we tend to assume we're now arriving at this decision in a completely pure and unbiased way. Well, you are, but you might be arriving at completely the wrong decision. Your your very eagerness to pretend that your decision is rational is causing you to make the wrong decision because those things are Mm. multipliers. They're not really additive function. It's not really an additive function. That makes sense. I I guess also you're not only they multiplicative sometimes Mm. if you're adding them together and there's there's a lot of data points, then the extreme Mm. uh, answers to some of them should really stand out. I, I've got a really <laughs> a really funny story from Fort Halstead, actually, when we were doing some risk assessments um, there. And there was a guy going around, uh, you know, similar sort of uh, mathematical formula, likelihood versus severity. I love so he's going, he's going through these drawers and he's going, he picks out his sort of cosh assessments. So, you know, 
control of uh, hazardous substances. And he picks out this Pritt stick and he goes, okay, and he writes it down, you know, and it's like a, a glue. Okay, so that's, that's a bit dangerous. And he goes through it and he finds something else and he's like a pencil. You could accidentally stab yourself with it. I don't know. And then he opened another drawer and it had a warhead in it. <laughs> like, uh, that's the big one. Yeah. That's the. <laughs> don't worry about the Pritt stick. Just, but it was, it was all of these, you know, you can imagine that risk assessment. It, it could have actually easily have got lost. The fact that there was mm. a drawer with a warhead in it. And then there was uh, a drawer of a Pritt stick in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's always made me very wary of risk assessments from yeah, now on. Absolutely <laughs> perfect, doesn't it? Yeah. And so, you know, we, we you know, Nassim Taleb is the guru on this, isn't he? The misunderstanding yeah. of things that are systemic and things which are, you know, which are essentially localised and containable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that, you know, that was a mistake really looking at the euro, for example, as a decision, because it's probably easier to quantify gains to scale than it is to quantify risks to scale. And it's always easier, by the way, to quantify cost savings than it is to quantify opportunities, because opportunities arise in unpredictable ways most of the time, okay? So there's a huge, you know, one of my arguments about advertising is that advertising is underused because essentially a large part of its value is probabilistic. You can't explain how it's going to advert, how it's going to improve things in advance, and you can't necessarily quantify how it's worked. But fame simply increases your surface area exposure to positive opportunity upside because the more people who've heard of you, the more opportunities you're presented with. I'll give you a lovely example of this. You know, when I wrote my book. The publisher obviously sent out copies to all sorts of people. And I would have thought, you know, well, OK, we need to focus who we send the copies to because, you know, it's a book about business and behavioural science and psychology and the need to understand that, uh, you know, we shouldn't confine our activities merely to those which we can predict the effects of in advance, just as we shouldn't only use drugs when we know how they work at the molecular level. You know, some things just work in general. And so you should do more of them. Mm. Because if we're not careful, the ability to quantify more will actually restrict our actions and restrict our opportunities uh, rather than expand them. And, you know, I think there's a problem with computerization and digitization, which it means that, you know, unless you can develop a model in advance, something becomes then undoable. Mm. And, you know, most of the value of that. So with this book, someone sent a copy to someone in Chris Evans's office. OK, this is radio producer, a radio presenter, Chris Evans. Mm -hmm. And the person liked the book and gave it to Chris. And then Chris happened to be in Cannes at the time of the advertising conference. So he wanted to speak to someone in advertising. So the guy who read the book suggested he interview me, and I was in Cannes, so I turned up on the show and talked about the book. And then Chris read the book because he was interviewing me, and so he kind of had to. And then he continued reading the book that evening, and I didn't realise this. The following day, he was going on about how much he enjoyed the book to two million people, okay? Mm. That was a totally unforeseen event. But for about 15 days after that, I was about number seven on Amazon. Wow. I was outselling mm -hmm. J.K. Rowling for about a week. <gasps> I was outselling the Highway Code, and I was outselling the Hungry Little Caterpillar. Now, that's mm. just a mass effect, okay? It's yeah. just an effect of fame, essentially. Mm. You, know, you know, nobody's there trying to optimise anything except mere availability effect. Now, if Chris had said the book was shit, you know, that could have happened. <laughs> Um, funnily enough, that probably wouldn't have dented sales all that much, mm. uh, oddly, okay? And um, whereas Chris saying he liked the book, 
suddenly presented me with an opportunity to sell the book to, you know, at least an opportunity to sell it to a million people who never would have come across it normally. I was going to ask you about fame generally yeah. and yeah. famous. It's really nice that you've come on our tiny podcast, but why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's lovely. I'll tell you a few things. One, don't forget, I am talking to a few hundred people, okay, mm. in the course of an hour. Now, we don't compare online audiences to physical audiences. We tend to compare them to TV audiences, okay? Mm -hmm. So when we had 30,000 people registered for Nudge Stock, everybody was going, this is an online behavioural science conference. Yeah. Everybody was going, yeah, that's quite good, you know, because it's online, you know, 30,000. You know, yeah, it doesn't compare with the audience for... Three, two, one, or bullseye in the 1980s. Mm. Okay, you know, three, two, one used to have a TV audience of 21 million, even though nobody understood what was going on. Mm -hmm. But I said, hold on. I said, in the end, we ended up with 120,000 people at the peak watching live. And I said, guys, guys, let's just sit back and think about this. That's one and a half Wembley Stadia. That's the Melbourne Cricket Ground. Now, okay, if you're a band, there are only about 15, 20 bands in the world maybe a bit more, maybe 30, 40, who can play to that big an audience, right, live. Mm -hmm. The point is, I don't know what your audience is. I should have checked, because if it's only you and your mum, probably I shouldn't have bothered, okay? But I'm assuming, <laughs> I'm assuming over time you'll get, you know, a few hundred listeners, okay? Mm -hmm. And serendipitous possibilities, right? I'm just spending an hour talking to 200 people, which is a lot better than spending 200 hours spending talking to one person at a time, okay, mm -hmm. in terms yeah. of the use of my time. Secondly, I'm in the behavioural science field. OK, now I've got to make a lot of noise because companies have a line item budget for advertising and PR and all the other things. No, no client has a line item budget for behavioral science. So I've got to create opportunities. I can't just sit back and wait for some budget to fall into my lap. And there's a reasonable chance that there's someone working in the NHS, OK, who is quite interested and sends the podcast to their boss. And the boss might get in touch with me and say, can you talk at another conference? Uh, so this is why the mm. public speaking engagement thing is very interesting, because in public speaking, you can either do it a lot or not at all, because mm. all your opportunities come from other. Now, the best opportunity, I, the reason I got to speak at TED in 2009 is because I spoke at a conference that I shouldn't have spoken at. So I spoke at a conference that wasn't worth speaking at. It, the reason was I was speaking to Nokia shortly after Ogilvy had won the Motorola accounts. So there was no actual opportunity there, right? <laughs> and I said, look, uh, the Motorola people in the agency go, what the hell are you doing? If word gets back to Motorola that you're speaking to Nokia, I said, I'm sorry, sorry, look, I made this commitment and promise before you won the Motorola account. I'm going to fulfill my promise, okay? I will happily record what I said and send it off to Motorola so no one's at an advantage, you know. But I said, I'm going to go and give this talk anyway. There was someone there from Nokia World. I spoke at Nokia World in Amsterdam to about 2,000 people. You'll remember back in 2008 or something, this was a – Nokia World was this massive state, 2,000 people in the audience event. Chris Anderson from TED was in the audience at Nokia World. He said, I'd like you to do a TED talk. Mm -hmm. Now, the point is that you're maximizing serendipity. Um, and first of all, it's more efficient than speaking to 200 people in sequence, doing it in parallel, some vastly better use of time. Secondly, it enhances serendipitous possibilities in terms of someone else getting to hear about us. Okay. Thirdly, I might learn something. And I I, I mm. learned that very, very you you've already told me three stories that I'd never heard before. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So I've learned something. Okay. And one of the things I discovered is everything's interesting if you're curious, right? 
Okay, yep. the idea that there are boring categories in advertising, that there are boring... Absolutely not true. If you dig deeply enough, everything is much more interesting than it seems. I, I went to a dinner party once. I sat next to a, a lady who worked on making plastic bearings out of oil from the oil. It was like a byproduct of the oil industry. I, if anyone is passionate about anything, I'm interested in it. Because if they are, I am. You, you, you're obviously yeah. like me. You know, someone, someone yeah. said the XV would say, you know, I specialize in prostate. Hello. No. Uh, I, I'd find that, I'd find, because I'd find that really, really interesting. I mean, anybody who goes deeply enough, who is passionate enough about any field, has something interesting to contribute. But there's also the fact that I learn that way. And one of the biggest discoveries, I went to a compliance conference because I happen to be in the same part of London. Now, I would, if you'd asked me in advance, you know, would you like to go to a compliance conference? I would have said, well, if you put a gun to my head, I might go to a compliance conference. But it sounds like the most te- – compliance is actually fascinating because they've realised it's not about box ticking, it's about psychology. And compliance is like advertising in reverse. Advertising is how can we get these people to do this new thing, okay, mm-hmm. um, new and exciting thing. And compliance is how can we stop people doing this dangerous thing. And it's packed full of ingenious psychological insights. And so I happened to turn up early – going, okay, well, I'm going to sit at the back and do my emails. I was going, shit, this is really interesting. <laughs> okay. I've never, and so, uh, you know, one of the great things I think about Zoom, by the way, is that all conferences will be increasingly online, mm. okay? Mm. And th- as a result, the chance of attending and, and not having to pay a fortune to attend, conferences in what you might call in your, in your mental hinterland goes up. Because advertising people just go to advertising conferences and the whole world becomes more and more siloed. And so this ability to create a hinterland of interests. We sh- we share a passion for weird things. In fact, you're on my Twitter. You're mm. one of the few people who's got the, the bell notification because I'm like, hey, he's probably going to come up with some weird thing. And this is about an embarrassing story. You put the workings of a toilet system y- yes. video up. And I was watching it about two o'clock in the morning. And I think my wife was like, what are you watching? And I, I think she would have preferred it if it was porn. <laughs> That's the genius of the, particularly the fabric conditioner drawer in your washing machine. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That's so it. what it does, how it works is it just, um, it's below the level of an, is it an Archimedean system? It's something like that, but it's named after some Greek who invented it. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is that when you, when the level reaches a per- certain point, the seal gets made and the siphon effect kicks in. So the entire contents of the drawer effectively siphon themselves out of the drawer and into your wash. So the way this, the way it works is there's no moving part there. You simply, that explains why you mustn't overfill your, comp- your uh, drawer of fabric conditioner. Because if you fill it up mm-hmm. right to the top, it'll promptly empty itself, you see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you half fill it. The washing machine then adds a commensurate amount of water that takes it over the threshold, and the whole thing then disgorges itself into your wash at the right moment. Beautiful. And it, and it explained why the short button press, this is me as an engineer, you see, this, this, is, this troubled me for, I think, my whole life, why the short button press on a toilet is a long flush and why the long button press is a short flush. It is? I didn't know that. Yeah, that's absolutely true, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's because of that principle. That when, you, when you hold the bottom down, you're, you're, you're closing off the chamber that actually does the flushing. If you do it quickly, you, you, you're starting the siphon and you're reopening the entire chamber to flush the whole oh, toilet. Wow. Because actually, that, that, that's, a, that's a classic case, by the way, classic case of engineers and rational people uh, getting it wrong because they optimize the wrong things or what happens is that they over optimize things 
And so they assume, that, I mean, this is a wonderful example with the Oxford vaccine, where they gave people a half dose for the first dose by mistake. Yes, I, I was tweeting you about the, yeah. how I think marketing mistakes caused a lot of death. Why do you think it was a marketing mistake? Well, because um, the efficacy of the vaccine is is just what it is, okay? There, yeah. there are different protocols, but the chemical the chemical doesn't change based on how you market the product, except it does a bit. So the efficacy of the vaccine, the main control on the efficacy of the vaccine is whether people take it or not. And there was a comedian, Leo Kurse, who said the Oxford vaccine is a bit like your mum coming back with some biscuits from the shop and telling you they're just as good as McVitie's, you know, when, when you know they're not. <laughs> and it, because they announced it, I think because there's a British humility, there's, there's a British culture of academic excellence, but then to be an organisation like that yeah. and have a humility about it. Uh, academics are particularly guilty of this. I know, I know we had one result that was 90%, but, but really it was a 70% result, and we should tell people that. But the, the net result of that is that people have gone out and gone, ah, it's not as good as the Pfizer one. It's not as good as the Moderna vaccine. And so people's faith in the vaccine was diminished, but also placebo effects of the vaccine were diminished. And for the sake of putting in a tweet, uh, i.e. your alchemy book, you could have actually changed the efficacy of the vaccine by purely Oxford Uni's alchemy department Saying it's pushing a 90% figure first. And they, they would have felt uncomfortable about it because they're scientists and they're like, well, you know, we don't want to overstate our case. It's a very British thing. There's re- well, there's also a really worrying culture in science, by the way, which is with very, very few exceptions. And I really mean very few exceptions. Uh, becoming famous is career suicide. Okay. Mm. Actually, becoming mm. rich is career suicide as well. Well, Gad Sab was talking about this. Yeah, so he, he was talking about going on Joe Rogan and how there was a reluctance in the academic community to go and do something like that, even though Joe Rogan gets 100 million views a month. Yeah. Uh, a, a if, you, if you simplify anything for public consumption, it can be viewed as inaccurate and therefore people will pull you to bits because it's not sufficiently qualified. B, I mean, uh, there's a weird thing, which is that your dedication to science uh, generally precludes you from making any money. So my brother was an academic at an Oxford college, and one of the academics had essentially produced what was the A-level set text for chemistry. Okay? So as you can imagine, I mean, he was loaded because the margins on those books are insane, and every single A-level chemist in the country had to buy their own copy every year. And so he had a Rolls-Royce and various things like that. And the rest of the the rest of the academics in the college basically hated this guy. Mm. I mean, really, really hated him. Maybe he was a hateful guy. I have no idea. I mean, maybe he became a total <laughs> asshole. Okay. Yeah. But it was considered that he'd more or less invalidated himself as a scientist. Mm. The second problem is the worst, the second worst thing you can have is have your own TV series or do anything rough, roughly populist because there's generally a disrespect to what's considered not playing the game because what you really want is an audience of nine people who are peer group reviewers or something who admire your work. And seeking to go over their heads, as it were, and seek out the court of public opinion is regarded pretty much as an act of treachery. Mm. And actually, it's stupid because when you look at scientific ideas, a lot of them fail because they're not noticed or they're not marketed. I mean, you know, I would say to my wife, who's a vicar, I would say very mischievously, no one would have heard of Jesus if it hadn't been for St. Paul. And St. Paul was basically 
you know, I mean, they call him a tent maker. My view is that marketeer. No, no, he was. A, I think he was an estate agent. Actually, I think St. Right. Paul. I think tent maker is actually a posh word for estate agent. You know, <laughs> oh, look at the wall hangings on that, mate. Lovely, <laughs> right? Okay. And I think he just go. I can work with this. I can, you know, and and um, you know, Darwin needed all those people known as Darwin's bulldogs to essentially. Is Darwin diff, mm. diffident guy himself and a bit of a recluse? I mean, interestingly, when he landed in the UK back from travelling around the world, so he can't remember where he landed, actually, Plymouth or somewhere, okay, um, he lands on the Beagle, never leaves the UK ever again. I don't think he ever left England ever again. He hardly left Kent uh, much. And so the problem is that, uh, that the mechanism for uh, what you might call disseminating scientific findings is broken because there isn't any disproportionality of, of fame. Okay, generally, mm. and then my other argument is that uh, the reason the reason for marketing important scientific breakthroughs is that the real implementational breakthroughs come at the at the intersection of fields, not within a field. Because mm. actually, within your field, you'll probably be quite unpopular if you're successful, because there's a huge amount of academic sort of jealousy and rivalry. <laughs> okay, mm. and actually, what you need to do is you need to say if I'm if I made an important scientific discovery, right? I need as many people as possible to know about this because someone in a related field or an overlapping field or a completely distant field may be able to see a completely di different application to me. And, I mean, mm. interestingly, the guy who is, you know, one of the I think one of the most important uh, um, scientists of the last 100 years, which is, you know, Mr. DNA, uh, fingerprint, uh, DNA fingerprinting at the University of Leicester, when he first mentioned the potential for uh, DNA identification in crime fighting so the audience didn't instead of going shit my bed that's bloody important isn't it right they, they actually just thought oh, that's funny you know we've got dna like but fingerprints for dna and they found it funny now, i don't know I mean, maybe that's a good reaction maybe that's laughter is the way in which you absorb a completely new and amazing concept but it always strikes me as really interesting that, that I mean, maybe, maybe that is good maybe that's wonderful but it always strikes me as really interesting that was the reaction Ole Peters oh you've got to do ergodicity ergodicity yeah. right the second most important thing that the world should know about in my opinion what's the most important memetics and cultural evolution okay yeah 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 got, got it no that's fair yeah okay I, I, I yeah. Think, yeah. in fact I, I see that that relates heavily to to this procurement argument shall I start on that one <laughs> I completely agree um, but you you are a mouthpiece. You're not a mathematician yourself, but you no. are a mouthpiece for his work. I know about Ole Peters because of you. And so you've got a tool set, which is to to allow other people access to interesting fields. One, one of your roles seems to me to be a connector of interesting things in different places and to put that under under a light that can be seen by, by a wider audience. And that's that is the Rory Sutherland role in the world. I mean, I know enough mathematics. I did do A level maths, so, uh, just to be clear. But but I knew enough to know this was really important. Yes, it, it was revealing an unsafe assumption that was present in the overwhelming majority of the population. Uh, sorry, the overwhelming majority of the decision. I don't think, I, I think evolution has prepared us with a very good understanding of ergodicity, which is why we yeah. make the decisions we do. But people who are seeking to rationalize decisions fundamentally are, are making uh, assumptions about rationality on the basis of assumed ergodicity, which, given that we evolved individually, not collectively, is basically an unsafe assumption.
And so, you know, my argument is, you know, just in my field of advertising, it explains brands, right? Brand, we don't pay a premium for brands because they're brilliant. We pay a brand for pre- we pay a premium for brands because they're reliably non-shite. Mm. That's why I'm talking to you via a Samsung television, not a Zog television. Because I paid the extra 300 bucks to go, it's got Samsung on the front, so it's going to be somewhere between okay and bloody fantastic. Whereas the Zog television might have been cheaper, but the downside variance risk was considerably higher because Samsung aren't, given what they've invested in their reputation, okay, they're not going to put a shit television on the market. Yeah. How does that relate to uh, ergodicity? Oh, oh! Because people are trying to exactly what I was saying about variance reduction. People are trying to re- improve the worst uh, more than they're trying to actually enhance the best. So they consider more about the aggregate than the individual. So the real experiment that's been done into human behaviour is done led by a guy called Oliver Hume, I think it is H U L M E, at the University of Copenhagen, and it shows that humans do respond differently. Their risk profile changes whether they're in an additive situation or a multiplicative situation. Now, the reasonable assumption about most human behavior is that it contains, no, it's not exclusively multiplicative. The secret of survival is not making any fatal decisions, a hundred decisions mm, in a row. Yeah, that's Nassim Taleb again, isn't it? Don't, don't survive. <laughs> it's not only about the exclude, you know, what you might call it, I think, an absorption barrier, which is where you, you actually die out. It's also that three three bits of bad luck in a row, for example, can be particularly dire. In my book, I explain the Ole Peters thing. And my, my colleagues get a bit bored because they say, look, you can't talk about ergodicity. I go, but I have to talk about it because this is It is. I think it's important to me, um, you know, not some weird conceptual mathematical idea, but um, one thing I see, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but one one of the areas where I see it playing out and is useful to people in my position who are are entrepreneurs or running a a software company or a SaaS company is I go to programming meetups all the time and, well, I used to, (laughs) and um, one of the things you see is people working really hard, software engineers working really hard to build up a business. And it's so many of those businesses are VC funded. So the, the, the on aggregate, it's a great system because you're a chip. Someone else's game. By the way, publishing in the film industry sort of work the same way, which is your, your small group of disproportionate successes and actually pharmaceuticals, by the way, pay for all your losses yeah i'm sure it's in lots of places but that to me i have i got this right is that an ergodic uh, process because when i meet those programmers i'm saddened that what happens is they throw their their heart and soul into their projects and into their businesses and they will put everything into it and they don't seem to realize that they are a chip in someone else's game yes and and because you can zoom out and you can you can look at the aggregate and go on aggregate, it works. Yeah, the fact is that guy who's backing you at the first sign of failure will dump you onto the... Um, and, and by the way, I mean, be very, very careful if you if you ever become a film star, for example, or, or, a, <laughs> or a script writer. Be very, very wary about moving to Hollywood because mm. Hollywood adopts that same approach. Mm. And, of course, we notice the people who succeed, but we don't notice the people who don't. And um, I'll give you an example of this. The journalist Matthew Dancona, who's also a film scriptwriter, made the point, he said, basically, in the medium to long term, there are no middle class scriptwriters in Hollywood. 
you either mm. you either end up making you know like thirty million dollars, or you end up basically you know scraping by. Mm. Right. And so, I mean, maybe Netflix and a few things have improved that a little bit, but that's because essentially the film is taking the aggregate, and you're actually one of the individual components. Yeah. Okay? So you're playing Russian roulette essentially, okay? And the the film company or the VC company or the um, the publisher to some extent, okay. Uh, is is effectively there because he goes five out, you know, it's not five out of six go. Okay, you know, most of these people are going to fail, and I'm basically interested in the one in six who survives the Russian roulette process. But that's not much consolation mm. for the five people who are dead, is it? Mm, right. The fact that a guy makes a lot of money out of you surviving Russian roulette, okay, it's not much consolation for the five people who are dead. And we also have the problem that the people who are dead, we don't even notice. So we don't mm. notice... By the way, I also think there's a bias there against marketing because when companies disappear that didn't do much marketing, no one notices their disappearance. So there's no <laughs> such thing. There's no such thing as a company that failed through not doing enough marketing because it's simply not a it's a bit like that bullet holes thing in the way you place the armaments in the plane. You'll know that story, won't you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so World War II, just to just for your listeners, okay. World War II, they look at all the places where the planes have bullet holes and they decide to add extra armor on those areas of the plane because you can then focus the armor where it's needed, inverted commas, and not weigh down the plane excessively by increasing the armament, the arm, the armor everywhere, right? Yeah. And then the brilliant guy from Columbia, whose name I forget, American middle European American mathematician, goes, Whoa, you're basically suffering here from total selection bias because the yeah. planes you need to be looking at are the one are all at the bottom of the North Sea. So you need to be adding armor to these planes where there aren't any bullet holes, because that's where the planes were hit that didn't make it back. What you've yeah. got is a list of places where planes can take a hit from a bullet and still make it back to base. You don't have to yeah. worry about that. And so you're absolutely right about that ergodicity thing applying to the VC model, because as an individual person, first of all, you're looking at the fact that, you know, Sequoia or whoever it is or whatever it is, you know, they were the people who backed Facebook and so-and-so, so-and-so, but they must have also pulled the plug on out of a lot of people, right, mm. which you never heard yeah. about. That's but true. then that marketing bias is really interesting. Did you know that HTC, strapline, quietly brilliant, hasn't made a mobile phone handset since 2018? Um, Ten years earlier, it was the largest handset maker in North America, outselling even Apple, Okay, wow. but because it was quietly brilliant, as distinct from Samsung, noisily brilliant, you might argue. Okay, mm -hmm. nobody noticed when it disappeared. Wow, you're right. Okay, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> we had noticed. <laughs> so, 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 what you know? If you think about it, you know, when Tesco, if Tesco went out of business, it'd be on the news for about six weeks. Mm -hmm. If you go out of business because you haven't done enough marketing, nobody notices. Yeah. Nobody notices. Yeah. And um, so there is no list of Harvard Business School case studies on businesses that disappeared because they didn't do enough marketing. Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. That's good. That's really, really fascinating. I don't think there's any chance of me becoming a film star. But it, it, it is very interesting that what you're doing is you're entering a system where the other people are reaping the, the um, ensemble gains of the fact that loads of really attractive people move to Los Angeles and some of them become millionaires, okay? Mm. Okay. And uh, you're actually, uh, you know, a cog in the machine. Now, admittedly, you know, the gains to success are disproportionately high, not only financial either, because, you know, you gain in all kinds of ways. But mm. nonetheless, uh, you've got to be conscious that the odds for the, the, odds for the ensemble 
are totally different in terms of long-term outcomes than the, the expe- expectation value for you. And your expectation yeah. value is actually zero. Yeah, your expectation value might be zero, but the, the odds can actually look really good to you. The, the example um, that Oli Peters came up with was, was that, that um, the coin toss where I think it's double. Yes, yes, yes. It, it's it's 50%, 50% heads, your, your pot goes up by 50%, tails, your pot goes down by 40%. That's how yeah. it works. And the, the ensemble value is positive, but the long-term expectation value is negative. So just to give you an example, okay, if you start with 100 bucks, okay, now there's a one in four chance you'll hit two tails in a row. Okay, that takes you down from 100 bucks to I think I've got this right 36, is it? So you you lose 40%, which take you down to 60, then you use 40% of 60. Yeah, I think it's 36. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Now, at that point, you need to throw three heads in a row just to get back your initial stake. Yeah, Yeah. because you got, yeah, you need to throw three heads in a row just to get back your initial 100 bucks. Okay. So and apparently the long-term expectation value under multiplicative dynamics of the is negative. The ensemble value is positive. And one of the things I keep explaining to evolutionary biologists is this sets the bar for cooperation much lower because any form of cooperation or risk sharing or risk pooling pays even at the level of individual selfishness. Mm. And I, I find this really interesting because I think um, – uh, you know, one of the things it explains is that what's an optimal and rational decision has to be uh, context dependent. You know, all those things are hugely mediated by your own individual context, which, of course, changes the whole nature of economics, because economics just assumes that your expect, expected utility theory, I think it's called, is that, you know, you basically do what will, and it assumes, I mean, utility is additive. I mean, reputation is patently multiplicative, Right. Because we know that from the joke that ends, you shag one sheep. You know that joke, don't you? <laughs> yeah. you've, all, you've all had that joke, haven't you? I haven't. Yeah. Brave from a Welshman. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a very mystery. I, I, I never understood as a Welshman um, that phrase, might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb. But apparently it refers to theft, not bestiality. So there you oh. go. You learn something new every day. <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> um, but... Um, the, the interesting thing is that it, it, it's basically this guy who goes, I, I don't know why it's set in Greece. I have no idea of any of this stuff. You know, I've, and anyway, this guy says, you know, if you want to go and have a good drink, go to Dimitri the Sheep Shagger's place. So he goes along and meets this guy. And the guy's lovely. He runs the bar. He's fantastic. And after a few drinks, he says, look, you're an absolutely fantastic guy. I think you're running a brilliant bar here. But do you realize that everybody in town calls you Dimitri the Sheep Shagger. He said, well, why is that? And the guy says, you know, I built all those boats in the harbour, but do they call me Dimitri the Boat Builder? You know, I endowed the church on the hill, but do they call me Dimitri the Philanthropist? I built the harbour wall with my bare hands. Do they call me Dimitri the Harbour Builder? No, you shag one sheep, right? <laughs> now, what that is a joke about is it's a joke about the fact that, it, that reputation patently exists under multiplicative dynamics. Mm. It's not an additive function where one thing offsets the other at some level, mm. okay? And so the assumption that utility can always be treated as if you, it, it's an additive function and that there's no kind of dependency involved is obviously mathematical nonsense. I think ordinary, non-educated people instinctively understand that with the way they start their businesses, lead their lives, do that, you know, and so on and so forth. Okay, so I think this is an area where, and I think there are lots of areas like this, 
and, and this is why I was drawn to it, okay, and I do not class myself for one failing second, okay, among the people who make this contribution, because I'm, 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 an, I'm an impresario, I'm not an intellectual, okay. The only thing I can say is generally my track record of spotting things that are important early, like the internet, which I spotted in 1987. My brother was an academic, so I used to blag time on the university computer. As a classicist, I wasn't given any computing time. But and I, I discovered Usenet, you know, news groups, and I thought, oh, shit, this is amazing. Potentially, mm. this is something else, you know. And I did spot that. I'm also, I'm also a huge Zoom evangelist. I think that's a transformative technology that people are talking about almost as if it's unimportant or a sideline. I don't think it is. I think it's one of the most important technologies to permeate uh, humankind in the last 50 years, um, much, much more important than people realise. Partly that's because I think the way businesses communicate with other businesses and communicate internally and communicate with other countries, is it was previously absurd. So you either had people flying somewhere and spending six grand and three nights in a hotel, right, or you had emails, right? And the yawning gap between those two was absurd. You know, it's like having a town where you had you had stretch limos and you basically had hand carts as a form of transportation and nothing in between. You know, it, it's that crazy, right? Mm. And, and business is always slow. I mean, the general order of progress goes pornography first, consumers second, um, mm. business third, public sector fourth. Wow. That's the general yeah. general order in which innovation takes place. Um, <laughs> I think the, the NHS is still the, is still the world's largest buyer of fax machines, if I'm right. Now, there may be a good risk. I will defend fax machines. Yes, no, I will as well. I, I will defend them because I think they have a role that people don't realise. They're one of the few devices where you... Um, basically have location-based authentication. So it doesn't matter if you're a bank staff nurse or a bank staff doctor or or someone else. If you happen to be in the room, you are authorized to receive that fax. And that is a very difficult thing to repeat in any other technology. It also has fairly reliable uh, provenance, okay? Although you can lie, I guess, on that. But the third thing is it's a bit of paper. And... You can't just leave a bit of paper. You've got to do something with it, right? Mm. And, and you hand it on to someone else. By the way, I mean, if, you know, there's, there are many, many reasons. If you're elbow deep in someone's thorax, okay, you'd probably mm. rather have a piece of paper than a screen because a keyboard's not much use to you in mid-operation. <laughs> so there are all kinds of reasons why paper has virtues, and I agree with you. And the other one would be if it's addressed to someone, you pass it on, they see it. You can duck responsibility with electronic forms of communication very easily. And I'll give you the classic ducking of responsibility one, which is uh, an email. We've all done it, okay? It's Friday, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and you're looking forward to basically switching off and watching telly. And someone sends you an email saying, could you write us 200 words? Yeah, I could. I could do it right now. Oh, fuck. I don't really feel like being a man. Oh, dear. <laughs> Oh, shit. What do I do? How do I buy myself, you know, a day's grace? Oh, I know. They haven't said when they need it. So I write back, yeah, I'd be really happy to do this. When do you need it by? And I press send, turn off my computer and go, okay, I've discharged my fucking responsibility here. I've done nothing of any value, okay? But I basically moved the monkey onto someone else's back. Yeah. And so the facts, I think there are lots of reasons why I will defend the NHS use of facts as well. Because I think as a form of communication in that setting, it may have virtues. Because it has proof of work, you're saying? Well, there are all, sort, there are all sorts of things. You can annotate it. You, can, you know, there, there are all sorts of reasons why paper has a certain potency, mm. um, which the screen doesn't. Um, mm. uh, you know, apart from anything else, you can read it while you're walking, okay? Mm. 
Mm. Right? You know, I don't know. I don't go to hospitals. People seem to be walking about a lot, you know. Um, mm. You know, there are. So, I, you know, I, I, I'll sympathize on that one. I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, you're in Facts, facts Club. Ah. Mm. <laughs> oh. mm. Yeah, we like Facts Club. Yeah, I d- can I brag for a moment yeah. about how my ability to see things in the future and why I think that is? I sometimes refer myself as Kevin Cassandra because, <laughs> by yeah. the way, I was born with terrible branding. Kevin is a terrible name to be taken seriously about anything. It's okay now. You're okay now. Yeah, I know. Actually, Jamaica's helping me in that regard because it's quite a popular name in South London and Jamaican communities. And the comedian Kevin Hart and... I, I will tell you a very funny joke from the late 80s, okay, yeah, go on. about Kevin's, uh, which was told to me. The advertising agency, I think it was KHBB, and they, they, they had a whole group of potential creative... Uh, no, no, potential graduate recruits here for the day to interview them. And... Um, one of them had the unfortunate name Kevin Penistone, which is P-E-N-I-S-T-O-N-E. Oh. So you naturally read it as Penistone. There is a place called Penistone, somewhere in Yorkshire or somewhere, OK? Of course there is. And the creative director <laughs> went up to him, looked at his name badge, which said Kevin Penistone, and he said, looked at it and said, it's my worst nightmare, that. He said, being called Kevin. <laughs> anyway, <sorry. laughs> so anyway, apologies. Apologies for laying that. It, it alliterates with Cassandra. Yeah, yeah, so no, Kevin why. Cassandra. Um, and I think, one because, right, for a start, January, I was stocking up my house, preparing for the coronavirus. Um, which I think puts me mm. in a strange... Okay, that's, that's total crap, yeah. yeah, total crap. Um, I was sending messages on WhatsApp to friends and neighbours saying, I think this thing's serious, you should prepare for it and, and do something about it. I was early on uh, masks, uh, Bitcoin. When I learned about Bitcoin, I could not sleep for two days. How many have you got? Well, not as much as I like. And the, the weird thing about when I discovered Bitcoin, my nine-year-old son had just been born. Uh, he was literally, I actually remember buying the Bitcoin and having him in my hand. Uh, and, he, you know, he was about the size of my arm. He was, he was you know, obviously brand new baby. Yeah, we, we were skint. We were just starting the company up. I'd just been told that the project we were working on was probably going to be cancelled, which funnily enough got reversed, which is why we're speaking to you now, um, because the company's done brilliantly uh, and it completely flipped. We had very little money. I had I was four hundred pound into our overdraft. Not 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 actually. For, I had four hundred pound left before I hit the bottom of my overdraft, and I spent two hundred pound of it on Bitcoin. <laughs> you got four. I, you? Uh, uh, no, no. I, had, I did have a lot more. I used. <laughs> I was very close to having hundreds of them. So I, it hasn't changed my life, but it's. Did you it's, spend some of them? I, I yeah I spent some of them. We my wife told me that we should, when they were quite high, when they're about two thousand each, we sold some and we said, if they go down again, let's sell some and go on a trip to New York and have a trip around New York and go. So and that, that cost you a million quid. <laughs> that trip to New York. <laughs> cost, that trip to New York has been oh. very expensive, but I I would say I have an ability to spot things early and. It's not because I'm a smart man. It's because I'm I'm interested in so many different things. I I love mind quakes. I yeah. love I loved your book and and I love I love a lot of your content. And it's because you're a fellow 
explorer of mind quakes. You know, you get these sort of um, tornado chasers yeah. that go, that go. I, I feel like we're both sort of people that go to the areas where you're likely to get yeah. a mind quake, where, you're, where you're, your view of the world is shaken and you think, God, the world is just not how I saw it. So when all. you mention memetics, by the way, do you mean memetics as in that French guy who was at Stanford? No, there's a mimetics, which is M-I-M-E-T. Oh, and memetics, which is memetics, is it? There's memetics, and there's mem, mem, like internet mem. Okay, so selfish gene. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it relate. It, this actually relates to procurement. Uh, do you, have you read The Selfish Gene? By yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a game changer for me. And actually, I suffered a brief bout of depression after reading it, in fact. Oh. Well, well, that's funny you should say that. Yeah. Because in the... 40-year anniversary edition, it deals with exactly that point. It says, how do you unread the selfish gene? Um, because the lady said that I basically had 10 years of depression. That wasn't, wasn't quite that was, bad with was me. Brought, was brought about by the selfish gene. Um, because once I had that mind quake, it put me into it. <laughs> it's made me think with my children as parasitic vehicles of genes. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought of my dog as a parasite down here because he basically he, he, he latches on to my biological drive to look after things with big eyes. It, it's mutualism. You're exploiting each other, I think, ultimately. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, they are, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think dogs are parasites. Cats are parasites, probably. <gasps> I have a cat. No, 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 I love cats. I'm actually a cat person, but I oh, think okay. they are parasites. They um, Basically, yeah. Uh, but dogs do actually, uh, I mean, the very interesting thing is that not only have dogs, dogs have co-evolved with humans. There's a really interesting theory, which is at the, at the absolute low point of human population, okay, they think that humans were down to about 8,000 breeding pairs worldwide, okay? And one theory is that the small group of people who survived some, you know, period of climatic disaster were the people who'd actually cracked dogs as a technology, okay? Wow. Because if you think about it, a dog's quite impressive in its way, a human's quite impressive in its way, but a dog plus a human is a serious fucking entity. Yeah. And the, the actual outcome of this theory is not only that it, as a dog you're not completely dog if you don't have a human, but as a human you're not completely human if you don't have a dog. Oh, this, this would be music to our team's ears. <laughs> a lot of dog, dog lovers. So you're not fully human. I mean, I, I can't have pets because I live on the second floor. I can't have a cat, I can't have a dog. And I, broadly speaking, buy that. I think I buy that theory that unless you've got a dog, you're not fully human. I, I can yeah. just about buy that. Yeah. Well, someone said to me, if you don't buy a dog, you are missing out on the perfect animal, an animal that has evolved to be the perfect partner over thousands of years just for you. Bit complicated because there isn't really a perfect dog, is there? I mean, Brie, the Border Collie is like the total joy. Oh, yeah, it's a genius, isn't it? And what's interesting, did you see that wonderful footage where you had Border Collie puppies which were automatically herding duckling? As if it's, <laughs> as if it's completely, I, I can't. Can it be a date? Like new. But they were actually mm. herding ducklings around. That was their instinct. Pointer dogs will still point. So it is innate. It's innate. To just, just point point at game. Yeah, it's really strange. So anyway, yeah. shall I go for the memetics thing? Because yeah, otherwise yeah. I, it will drive me insane. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so in The Selfish Gene, he introduces this idea of, of the meme. Yeah. And says that essentially you could have the similar con kind of concept that there are memes that are perpetuated and they have the same replication engine. 
So they they reproduce. Uh, there's selection and there's inheritance. And there's another lady who's written a book called The Mem Machine. Susan Blackmore. I'm going to have a look at that. Brilliant. She's okay. probably the academic most well known for memetics. Um, but that idea just completely shook the foundations of my existence. And I started to realize that actually the selfish meme is everywhere. And, and it has massive repercussions for how we, for our discourse on the internet. You know, Mariah was uh, pretty stressed. Mariah's a fl- fl- Florida. Floridian. <laughs> a Floridian <laughs> is a Florida. Pretty stressed about the elections. Um, we, we were talking about the elections. And I have a weird idea that if I was a GOP strategist, this, this idea that all, all votes seem to basically split 50-50. Brexit, the Tory Labour, I'm okay, it wasn't uh, actually a perfect split, but if you take the Lib Dems and Labour and stick them together, yeah. I think you could basically argue that there's Tory and anti-Tory. And so my idea of this sort of mimetic virus that's got into our mind is that there are some mems mm. that are not for the benefit of the host. And much like we've got this RNA virus going around at the moment, there's a mimetic virus, a toxoplasmotic virus. Can you explain to me why, why, having had this insight, Dawkins basically suddenly goes off on an anti-religion? Well, because his dad was a vicar and he hates religion, right? His dad was a vicar? No, I don't think his dad was a vicar. Was his dad a vicar? I thought his dad was religious. I suspect he's got a child or something who's become religious. and it bothers, But I don't understand it because... You, I mean, you might argue that most of religion is just a creation of solid group solidarity combined with the gamification of uh, altruism, right? Mm. And generally, its universality suggests it might have some positive effects. I think it does have. I'm. A, I, we were. We had this and I were having this discussion yeah. the other day. I was talking to a zoologist. I'll be very mischievous, yeah. Mariah. Okay, I'd rather break down in a red state than break down in a blue state. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I, I think. I think that actually. Um, I, I think to some extent that people in red states are nice people pretending to be nasty and people in blue states are nasty people pretending <laughs> to be nice. Actually, now, okay, I've got, I've got to factor a load of things in, like I'm white and I'm British. Yeah, so exactly, I'm not, yeah. no, 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 Okay, but the general level of, of friendliness seems to be inversely correlated. Well, yeah, you, you're falling into my mimetic virus trap, okay. I'm afraid. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. This, is, this is what I'm concerned about, is that if it is a positive negative replicator, if the idea is that you define your your own politics and your own beliefs by what you are not, yeah. um, it, it, there's a Slate Star Codex article that argues that rape, um, rape cases tend to get reported on the ones that are where there, there is some amount of doubt. If if everyone yes, that's absolutely if, true. If it's a clear rape case, it's awful. You know, there's no one who is generally pro-rape in in the world, right? But at the, at the very least, okay, when it's clear cut, people are likely to plead guilty. Yeah. Or in many cases, of course, uh, worse still, that uh, the person doesn't even bring it, even though it's clear cut, they don't even bring it to uh, uh, court for all sorts of very complex reasons. But I mean, that's your. This is yeah. undoubtedly true. Yeah. So in this Slate Star Codex argument, it basically argues that the it's the ones where it is a contentious issue yeah. where it pays because it, it ends up in this positive negative replication cycle. And and the one idea, well, I'm pro-Trump, 
forces you to have the other idea, which is I'm um, I'm anti-Trump, and so those those the selfish mem is basically optimizing for a 50-50 split, and so what that means is if if I was a GOP strategist, I would have assumed that this mimetic uh, culture that developed that, that's, that's self-optimizing will always rebalance pretty much to 50-50. And if you are if you are a strategist in a, an election campaign, you should realize that most, most political movements are defined by what they're not. And, and if one goes up, the other one will come up uh, to meet it. Or one goes down, the other one will come down to meet it. And you're it's basically caught in this 50-50 loop. If I was a GOP strategist, I would have promoted the Dem Party, the Democrats yeah. in California as hard as I could. And I would have taken the staunch red states and actually campaigned for the Dems in the in the red states. But what you want to do is, is raise up the average across where it matters. So the Tories sort of accidentally, I don't know whether they deliberately did this, but the Tories basically did this with North London. They, they, they made Labour and the sort of cultural elite the, the party of North London. And what unites everyone else? Is hating North London. Is hating North London. And, and I, we are not North London. So if I was a Tory party, I'd be like, yeah, that Labour is, Labour's, Labour's North London. Labour is Islington. Labour... Labour is everything that you working class, uh, you know, from, from the industrial north, it's everything that you're not. And so by pushing the London vote up, you, you actually end up taking all of the seats across the rest of the country. Actually, in a weird way, the left has fallen into that trap more because by being concerned, by making politics about things that largely concern academics and students, Okay. And and journalists. Okay. I mean, if you think about it, the, the Democratic Party in the US used to be a weird coalition of Southerners and Northern Liberal until that Reagan, I suppose it was the Reagan Revolution when the Republicans captured the South and they've never really lost it since. Mm. In, fa- you know, in fairness to conservatives, they're not very easily demographically stereotyped if you look at it subtly. They're very easily stereotyped if you simply wanted to pick you know, a load of rich people manipulating everybody else. Mm. Now, in order to justify the fact that conservatives get quite a large share of the vote, it's not plausible to say it's just rich people voting conservative. So your story is it's rich people who are manipulating these morons. (laughs) And so you end up depicting a large swathe of the country where there's total cretins, right, in order Mm. to explain the fact that these people are actually an electoral force. It's It's a much safer game to vilify people who actually have power, right? Because uh, in a sense, you, 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 you know, you, so the, conservative, the, the anti-conservative narrative is always that where it's manipulation via the press. You could argue that the conservative narrative is that essentially uh, it's manipulation through the institutional capture, that, you know, universities, et cetera, have been essentially captured by deranged people who are obsessed with, you know, very, very few dimensions of inequality and injustice, by the way. I mean, you know, it's a very selective take on injustice. The extent to which I think the people who are most visible, of course, the things that get the most discussion are the ones which are ambiguous. So things on which people are generally agreed don't get any, don't create any news coverage. You know, consensus doesn't, because what's strange about it is if you ask a completely different question, okay, which is what sort of country would you like to live in? 
You know, because I think that's a reasonable question because mm-hmm. you can't just choose a fantasy world, okay? You've got to actually say, we've got to choose some sort of system or entity that actually exists, you know? And people on the left might say Denmark or Nor- or Sweden or Norway, okay? And they might lean towards Scandinavia. I'd actually lean quite heavily Scandinavian. People on the right would probably be more likely to say Australia. And then people on the further right might say Texas. Okay, I don't think anybody would say North Korea, right, or Venezuela. And so when you look at it, the differences between those countries, the difference between Australia and Denmark is unbelievably trivial, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of what actually happens there, how it works, how the system works, is ludicrously trivial. And so the fear is created by the most extreme people on either side, I think. And so they somehow get disproportionate coverage. But you're right about that, that defining yourself by what you're not now, you could argue, by the way, there are ways to define yourself by what, you not, what you're not, which are politically consistent, which is defining yourself as broadly, you know, centre-right or centre-left because you don't like dogma strikes me as quite sensible, which is that to say, I'm, you, know, I'm bro- you know, I'm broadly speaking, you know, left-wing conservative or centrist conservative or a moderate socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the definition you're using there is, Essentially, I don't think human life is so simple you can cram it into a simple mental framework. So I'm naturally averse to any uh, attempts to do exactly that. All right. Strikes me as perfectly sensible. But there's no there's new there's no news coverage in that position. I mean, if you want to get onto the if you want to get onto the radio four, if Radio Four ever ring you up and say, We've got a program tomorrow about this, um, uh, could we just talk about this because we're looking for panelists, okay? And you say I have a deeply complex and nuanced position on this question. Yeah, you're not going to get. They'll bring you back in 25 minutes and say actually you're no longer needed tomorrow. Right. Don't worry. Or worse still, they don't tell you you're no longer needed, so you get up at five o'clock in the morning and then get a text to say you're no longer needed. That 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 to me is the mimetic virus. That is the thing because because if you if you take it from a sort of Darwinian evolutionary approach, it is selecting for stories that are deliberately divisive and they are therefore the ones that replicate and it, and and that that process strengthens and strengthens and strengthens there's another thing which is there's another thing which um michael poliani said which is that you have two kinds of belief you have the belief which is basically based on articles of faith like you know the creed in religion okay and you just believe it because you say you believe it and because you know it's not entirely true but it's helpful to proceed as though that were true okay mm. The argument of Michael Pollyani is that science has totally directed its attention to eliminating, through sort of scepticism, eliminating those kind of beliefs, which are helpful, heuristic, um, as if mental mechanisms. I will proceed as though this were true, because generally that will have beneficial consequences, okay? Mm -hmm. And then you have a different approach, which is, uh, no, 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 any belief must be fact-based, But that runs into a much more complicated mental problem, which is people will actually then form a belief which becomes a religion based on a very selective reading of very few facts. And those beliefs aren't really subjected to the same level of assault by the Enlightenment project. Okay. Now, you could argue it's because we took the wrong... If we had the Scottish Enlightenment rather than the French, we wouldn't have made that mistake. Because I think the Scottish Enlightenment has a healthy dose of uncertainty about it. And it's also a human-centred, not a theory-centred. It's not evolutionary because it predated that. But it's at least a human nature-centred, not a kind of chessboard-centred, mechanistic Mm. uh, view of what humans are all about. 
And so you, you so you could argue that you know a, a much healthier divide, but it wouldn't lead to the same level of exciting conflict. Because let's face it, you know, I, I admit this about all of us, right? Okay, you're all sitting, presumably you're at home or in a place not far from a window. Okay, if you heard two people outside the window talking about the weather, you wouldn't even get up from your chair. But if you heard a fight break out, you'd have your nose pressed up to the window for the whole time, and you can see the behaviour in chimps. Okay, if you want chimp audience figures, if there were chimp TV, I reckon it would mostly feature sex and fighting. Okay, yeah, you know, uh, right? Okay. <laughs> You know, that's chimp TV, basically. You know, it would be like the Discovery Channel, which is sharks and Nazis, only it would be, okay, we've got fighting hour from, you know, 7 to 8 ET, you know, what is it, you know, 6 six to 7 Pacific, and then we've got sex hour, and then we've got fighting hour, okay? Yeah. Now, undoubtedly, if you look at news programmes, they play, they under the guise of being news programmes, they're really fight programmes. Mm. That problem seems to me to be unbelievably um, strong, uh, and you know the fact the fact that you even get anti-maskers. Okay, I mean, I can't get that, but except in opposition to something else, I, I've come across people who profess it, but I, I, I don't really get it because not much more inconvenient than my, the requirement that I wear clothes to go into Saint. Right. Yeah, it might be mildly enjoyable to get my genitals out of the same as but I don't regard it as a <laughs> massive cold. inconvenience that I'm not allowed to do it, you know. Yeah. And also, I accept the fact that it would be deeply disturbing to other people. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's worth remembering with a mask, okay? Forget about you, okay? If there's someone who's 75 who wants to go into the shop and you're in the shop and you haven't got a mask in, they can't go shopping for the next hour, okay? That's not fair, mm. right? Even if their fear mm. is completely irrational, just meet them halfway, for God's sake, you know. Mm. You know, the government made people go and fight in Vietnam in the United States. You can't really yeah. complain about, you know, this. I fully agree with that. But I would say there are some people with extreme preference. I've got one friend who is a really anti-masker, but he's also an ex-punk rocker and he also believes in flat earth. He is an absolute extremist. And I went to see him and he looked absolutely sort of demoralized. He was like, I can't go anywhere because everywhere I go, I have to wear a mask. And I said, you should just go out there. He was totally happy putting safety pins in his nose. <laughs> but a mask <laughs> constitutes a massive inconvenience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's just a, he's just a contrarian. He, <sighs> you know, I, this is about where I find mind quakes is I love contrarians. I, yeah, love, I, lo I, agree, yeah. I love benevolent contrarians. I'm a big Scott Adams fan because I see him as a, a, the Dilbert guy because he's, to me, he's a benevolent contrarian. He's, he's pro-Trump he, and he, he's in, intelligent. And there's, in, there's interesting things there. There's, there are, there's something about him that is more likely to cause a mind quake than, than our other areas of, of my life. So I'm attracted to him. I'm attracted to this guy because who the hell believes in flat earth? Like I'm not saying he's particularly ac academic, but it's it it just quite interesting because he just likes the story. I think I spoke to his wife and I was like, does he really believe in this? Or does he just like the sort of folklore story explanation of it? And she said, yeah, I, I think it's that, but he's got a big map on his wall of, of, uh, the earth as it as he sees it with the the great wall down on the antarctic and uh but he's yeah he's really anti-mask and um it but it's such a part of who he is i kind of like yeah you should just 
you've got such an extreme preference. You are such an extreme case. This is this is damaging your life. You 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 almost have a medical condition. But if you think about it, okay, who would you in Trump the Trump question, right? Who would you prefer as a boss, right? A you know a slightly incompetent, egotistical pisshead who really liked you, or a highly competent administrator who you suspected secretly hated you? You choose the first guy every time as a boss, right? Okay. Yeah. Because we, you know we. We're personal. We're social animals. Okay, and there is a difference there, and this is which is the the when the right attack the left, they tend to they tend to portray them as naive, okay, or well intentioned but mistaken. Whereas when the left misportray the right, they portray them as universally evil or stupid, mm -hmm. right? Now, there's a very very big difference in the degree of offence you're likely to take at one or the one or other of those two. Two positions and metropolitan disdain, by the way, okay, is much much. If, if you're metropolitan, you never notice it, okay. No. You never notice that. Met I mean, look, look, look at the media; it's famous because I think. Look at Deliverance, right? Okay. <laughs> now, if if we had sensitivity about the portrayal of rural people rather than the portrayal about ethnic groups, gender, etc. Deliverance is a plastic Okay, right. Yeah. Okay, it's a bunch of sophisticated city guys. Uh, I mean, it's the most appalling stereotype. Mm. And yet we're okay. Mm. I love the film. I don't get me wrong. You know, I really mm. enjoy it. But, the, you know, all these things, I mean, I thought that the, the latest Borat movie was, you know, appallingly rude to Kazakhstan. Okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just appalling misportrayal of all kinds of things. I mean, mm. and, um, and yet, the, the 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 weird sort of offence meters that the left has are very strange because they're completely blind to certain things. Which in you know, metropolitan disdain, it's famously said that the Dukes of Hazard as a program, which I think has now been taken off the air because the General Lee has a Confederate flag on the roof. Such a cool looking card, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, interestingly, it was the first sympathetic Hollywood portrayal of the rural South. Mm. Okay. Mm. Now, you look at these things, and we've, it's very, very easy if you're in a metropolitan setting. And by the way, all people who move to the city become city wankers because, because of um, essentially what's called the um, – uh, let me get – it's the fox and the grapes, essentially. You have to move to the city in order to earn a reasonably well-paid job that will pay off your student loan. And being forced to put up with the pain of city life in order to have this salary, you start telling – it's called adaptive preference formation – you start telling yourself loads of reassuring stories about how cities are really cool and the countryside's rubbish in order to, despite the fact that the opposite is largely true, by the way. I mean, the internet means that 90% of what you could buy in a city in 1970 is exactly, you could buy exactly the same shit in the countryside, right? Mm. Right. Okay? You know, it's not like if you want to watch a South Korean film, you have to go to a big city because Netflix is the same everywhere, right? So the deficit in terms of exposure to things... Actually, we've never explored this. We, 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 I had this debate with a friend that wanted to do the same journey as us from London to Whitstable or to the Kent countryside. And the, the, the how much that revealed to me coming from London out to here. And they said, oh, I'm a bit worried about the diversity. And I said, well, you mean ethnic diversity, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If you want diversity of opinion, you've come to the right place. <laughs> because if you go to Thanet, 
or Canterbury, yeah. <laughs> you're going to hear mm. two very different stories. Kent is not very ethnically diverse. Although it's not, it's not negligible, but it's not very ethnically diverse. But it, it's a microcosm of the UK in most other respects. I'd agree with you because you've got uh, brilliantly the estuary towns were described by Stuart McConey as the kind of place you take your northern friends when they accuse southerners of being soft. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, you get, you get yourself down to the Medway towns. In Dartford, night out in Dartford. I used to go out yeah. with a Dartford girl. No, you wouldn't, you wouldn't call southerners soft if you've had a night out in Dartford, trust me. <laughs> so, you know, it, it is that weird mixture of the bucolic and the practical so that you can drive through a medieval village and then five miles later, you can buy hubcaps, replacement hubcaps for a Mercedes van at 11 o'clock at night. You mm-hmm. know? It's an amazing mixture of the two. But no, uh, also, of course, when you move to the country, you mix with a far more diverse age group than you in London. In London, everybody you know is within three years of your age. Mm. You know, so those kind of things, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but there's much more homophily uh, in London in terms of people who meet people who work in the same industry as them, who, you know, who do the mm. same kind of jobs as them, the same kind of age group, you know, all that sort of stuff. Was a mindquake chaser. I love it down here. Mm. It's been a best move of my life. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm a huge, I'm a total fan as well. I, I've never regretted it for a moment, really. And um, what do I miss? Um, a few weirder ethnic foods, like Lebanese food, is harder to get hold of. Um, and then the only the only thing cities continue to do better, obviously, is things where you need large crowds of random people. You know, whether that's a nightclub or whether it's the dating scene, which I'm a bit old for now and a bit married for. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I think that Tinder in London's probably a bit better than Tinder in Cornwall. You know, let's be honest <laughs> about that, right? Okay, so there's certain things which require uh, the you know the huge congregation of um, ant like. I was watching a documentary on, by the way, the um, the how ants respond to infection, which is mm-hmm. a form of variolation, which is they get themselves a very little bit infected from other ants, which then confers immunity. Quite interesting. Anyway, wow. but I, I was starting to think we always refer to humans as being ant-like, and I started watching ants, and I started thinking of them as Londoner-like. You know, in that weird propensity to crowd together in unbelievably small spaces. You know, you know. Gosh, these things are just like Londoners. Um, but um, no, it, it is very. That is very, very interesting. Nassim's very interesting on this because he's a big fan of suburbia because he says you've got the countryside when you want it, and you've got the. He's not, he's in sort of Larchmont or thereabouts in New York. Yeah, he's a regular mindquake creator. He's an he's 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 an epicenter of many many minds. But this has been a huge pleasure. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it, Rory. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. We really enjoyed having Rory Sutherland and hope to have him back for more Mindquakes. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week.